The beginning of January is always such a fascinating cultural moment for us um, because it's a time where we look ahead with uh, kind of a renewed sense of hope, with expectation. We kind of look back on the year that has passed and we think about what has gone on and some of the stuff we're grateful for and some of the stuff we want to change and wish is different. This is a time where we think about that change and uh, try to imagine our lives moving in a new direction. There's a great line in the movie Forrest Gump where uh, one New Year's Eve Forrest is in Times Square in New York City and the countdown to uh, midnight and the changing of the year is taking place and a woman standing next to Forrest says, don't you just love New Year's? Everybody gets the chance to start over. Everybody gets a second chance. And there is that sense as we start a new year that something new can happen. And some of that involves things we want to change, things we want to change in our lives, things we want to change in our relationships, things we would love to see change in this world. And I want you to know I'm a fan of this time. I'm a fan anytime in our plugged in, hyper busy, crazy world that we stop at any moment as a people and think, how are we doing? What do we want to change? Is things going well or things not? How am I doing? What habits do I have? The desire for change is very real. The desire is a really good thing. And I want us to lean into that cultural moment in January. The problem is not the desire to change. The problem we have as a people is the follow through, is the execution of it. Forbes magazine just released a, a kind of study, a survey on uh, new te- uh, the New Year's and New Year's resolutions. And what they found is that Americans, more than most other countries, love New Year's resolutions. We like having a plan. We like having goals. We like having an agenda. We like having a strategy. We love the concept of New Year's resolutions. It's just by today, January 7th, most of us eh, haven't quite followed through on all of them. And we have like these amazing ways of justifying, right? Well, does January 1st really count? I mean, it's kind of a holiday still, so I'm not going to really start today. And then the kids are still in, you know, home, and that makes life chaotic, so I can't really start. But, you know, I'm going to start soon. Although Forbes goes on to tell us that by the end of the first quarter, by the end of March, most all of us will not only have not followed through in our resolutions, we're a little fuzzy on what they even were. But what's also interesting is, is that going to dissuade us from next year doing the same thing? Nope. We've got this fascinating cultural loop going on where we kind of reflect on the year past. We reflect on our lives. We come up with a plan to change it. We fail in that plan. We kind of forget that plan. And then next year, we're going to do it all over again, which is, according to some people, the definition of insanity, (laughs) doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. The desire to change, to see our lives and our relationships and our families and our world in a different place is a good thing. But the way that the Bible talks about how we change is different than how we culturally approach it. I want you to hear today that that desire is good. And I want you to also hear that the promise, the underlying promise of Christian faith is that you can change. You can change. Your habits can change. Your relationships can change. Your marriage can change. Your friendships can change. Your relationship with your children can change. Your relationship with your parents can change. Your career can change. This city can change. This polarized nation can change. Even in an election year, this world can change. God can change the world. And you and me. 
And that desire to lean into something new is good. But what we're going to do is try to kind of reorient our action steps, our follow through. And that's what we're going to look at to start this year, to start a, a five-week series about how we change, very creatively entitled, How We Change, <laughs> to examine how we can change. It's going to be five weeks looking at one single chapter of the Bible from the New Testament, Acts chapter 9. We're going to spend all five weeks working our way through this chapter where we're going to see people change, communities change, and the world start to change. And we're going to ask ourselves what that might mean for us this year. And I think if we take this seriously, and I just want to say this before we begin, this might cause us to think differently about how to approach 2024 than we've ever approached a new year before might cause us to act differently than culturally how we have done things before. And I want to say from the beginning that the reason this is a five-week journey and not a one-week journey is that there should be some moments as we walk through this change that might feel confusing. There might be moments that you feel more disoriented than having clarity because change is not something we can neatly sum up in 20 minutes and prepackage and just give to you and you're like, oh, okay, I'll change now. There's a process where we might have to have a little bit of confusion before we can get clarity at the other side. There's always a movement through the wilderness before you cross into the promised land. And so as we walk through these five weeks, I invite you to stick with us. Because if you feel a little confused or disoriented, you may not be doing it wrong. You may be exactly where God wants you to be. So that we can truly understand how we change in the year ahead. The goal for this series, before we read the scripture passage, really comes from uh, a pastor, former president of Fuller Seminary named Mark Laberton. And I want you to have this image in your mind as we, as we start. Mark Laberton was asked, he's a great preacher, and he was asked one time uh, what the point of preaching is. What's his philosophy of preaching? And he said that the job that you're supposed to do as a preacher is that the preacher is supposed to set up a, co a conversation between the congregation and God, and then for the preacher to get out of the way. Supposed to set up a conversation between you and God, and then for me to get out of the way. That's what this whole series is trying to do. I'm not trying to tell you how to change. I am trying in this to set up a five-week and hopefully ongoing conversation between you and God, and then for me and this church to get out of the way. And I think if we can do that, if we can persevere in that, 2024 might have a magnificence to it that's beyond what we can plan for here today. All right? <laughs> All right. That's great. Five weeks in to a five-week series, and I've lost you already. Are we good? Yeah. There we are. All right. We're going to begin by looking at the first nine verses of Acts chapter 9, and I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. 
Saul got up from the ground, and even though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray no matter who we are or how we gather here today, what beliefs, what hopes, what resolutions we have, that every one of us would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would transform us forever. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so to set the scene for this whole series, which is, again, based on this one chapter, we actually need to understand a little bit more about Saul from the previous two chapters in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, which is where we see Saul first appear on the scene. So to understand uh, the kind of the context, we have a slide here that sort of helps us to understand a little bit about what takes place that leads to this encounter on the road to Damascus for Saul. We're first introduced to Saul in Acts chapter 7. And I want you to, in your head, picture the fact that up until this moment, all of the events uh, of, of the new church had happened in one city. That's really important for what takes place here. It all happened in Jerusalem. Jesus on Holy Week, on Palm Sunday, enters into Jerusalem for the Passover. It's in Jerusalem that he is arrested. It's in Jerusalem that he is tried. It's in Jerusalem where Pontius Pilate and Herod are. It's in Jerusalem where he is killed, where he is crucified. It's in Jerusalem that he is buried. It's in Jerusalem that the first Easter happens and he rises again from the tomb. It's in Jerusalem uh, and out, just outside of Jerusalem where he ascends into heaven and tells the disciples to go and wait for the Holy Spirit. They return to Jerusalem, to this one city, and they gather in an upper room. And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends upon them and gives them this power and this call and the birth of the church takes place. And from Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, Jerusalem is still the center of this brand new movement of followers of the way. Everything takes place there. And it says that thousands of people in Jerusalem start coming to faith in Jesus as the Messiah of the world, as the Savior. Conversions start happening. Now what happens by Acts chapter 7 is as this movement is growing, there is a man named Stephen. And Stephen is one of the first converts to Christianity in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches to people. He talks about his new faith in Jesus. He talks about how Jesus, the one they crucified, rose again, that he is the Messiah. Stephen describes his faith. And he does so in the presence of a whole lot of people, including the Pharisees, the religious people who are seeing this Jesus movement growing. And they respond to Stephen the way they responded to Jesus. They kill him. He's martyred. He's the first martyr in the history of the church that we know of. And the way they kill him is that there's this mob of people who are there and they all have rocks in their hands. They have stones in their hands and they throw them and hit Stephen until he dies. It's a terrible way to die. And this mob, this lynch mob, is orchestrated, the text tells us, by one individual. And it's the first time we see this name mentioned. His name is Saul. Saul is one of the religious leaders. He's a Pharisee. And the first thing we see is him orchestrating the first killing of a Christian. Says that in Acts chapter 8, then, that 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 martyrdom leads to a persecution in Jerusalem. Everything's still there. And so Saul, it says very clearly, is the one who orchestrates this purifying of what needs to take place among the religious people of the day. And he starts going after and hunting down Christians. And so what happens is, and this is really important, is that at that point the movement leaves Jerusalem in many ways. Because people, if they're being persecuted, but it's limited to a city, what are you going to do? You're going to leave the city. 
right? And so it says in Acts 8 that Christians start spreading out from Jerusalem to avoid the persecution. But of course, what that means is they're taking the gospel with them. And the gospel starts moving out from this city-centered faith to something that starts spreading to the neighborhoods, the towns, the cities around. And Saul, it says in Acts chapter 9, hears that some of these followers of the way have spread from Jerusalem up into Damascus. Damascus, still a city today, it's in modern day Syria. And to journey from Jerusalem to Damascus was about 140 miles north. It took about eight days to walk there, which is how almost everyone, including Saul, would have traveled. And so Saul gets permission, as he's done in Jerusalem, to go to Damascus to hunt down these Christians. And he's given the authority to do so. Leaves Jerusalem with soldiers and with authority to, to, to terrorize people. Totally intent on continuing to do it. But of course, as we just read about on the road, something happens. As he's nearing Damascus, near the end of this eight-day uh, journey, he's knocked to the ground. You ever been knocked to the ground by God? I know, I know some of you have because we've talked about it. I know I have at times. Jesus shows up. You can imagine the terror in, 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 in Saul. Right? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one you were persecuting. Uh oh. <laughs> Says they were terrified. That's a good word for it. They probably were. Says the other soldiers could hear what was going on, but they couldn't see anything. And then Jesus, though, as Jesus does with you and I, as Catherine led us in, in our confession today, when Jesus meets us in our sin and in our brokenness like Saul, he's not there to get revenge on Saul. But he, he forgives and then gives a new purpose, a new direction. He reorients Saul's life. This is a moment of incredible change for Saul. But imagine for those first Christians who were in Damascus, who had fled persecution in Jerusalem at the hand of Saul, to hear he's coming, to know he's coming with troops, and to see him eight days later like a child led into the city by the hand. And for three days he can't see, he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink. I want you to think about how this moment, this inflection point in Saul's life, this moment where he doesn't understand everything about what his life's going to look like, but this is the moment of great change for him and will orient the rest of his existence. I want you to think about how different change happens here from culturally what we do at New Year's. And I don't want you to just think about a list, right? It's like, oh, you're right. My list has all been about eating less sugar and less carbs and getting healthier. That's probably not everything that 2024 should be. So I'm going to be more like Saul and be more religious in my goals. This isn't about what your resolutions are. Where I want us to start is not with a what question, but with a who question. The real power we need to get in, if we want to live into change in our lives, is to realize Saul doesn't author his own change. But it's God who breaks into his life and changes the direction and transforms Saul's life. You see, culturally, when we make resolutions, there's an assumption in it. And if you're a resolution maker, I don't want you to feel bad about this. But um, at all, I really don't want you to feel bad. Again, I'm a fan of any time we're thinking about the patterns of our life. But what I want you to see is that resolutions are our ideas for what our lives need to improve in the ways we want them to. You see that? It's like, oh, this isn't what I want for my life right now. I'm going to make some changes, and here's what the changes are going to be. And I see this, and I've got the action steps. Saul doesn't make any resolution here. Who 
is authoring the changes in your life? Who is the author of your life in 2024? Because one of the things we see in this text, and you and I need to consider, and this is why this can be almost confusing at times, is that the thing that God on the road to Damascus calls into change for Saul is not the stuff Saul would have thought God would want to change. I'm sure Saul knew he wasn't a perfect person. I'm sure Saul knew that there were things. He, better, he could have made some resolutions. I'm going to tinker with that. I'm going to change this. I'm going to have a better outcome. What God calls into question for Saul on the road to Damascus is what Saul would have said was his greatest strength. You see that? You and I could talk to Saul before this moment. It was like, what's the best thing you bring to the table? It's his faith. He's been recognized for it. He's been celebrated for it. Saul isn't from Jerusalem. He's not part of the establishment of elites, if that existed. Saul was from Tarshish. That's where he grew up, which is a small town in modern-day Turkey. To become a Pharisee when you're from Tarshish, you've got to be the best of the best. You've got to be the smartest. You've got to be the most gifted. You've got to be the most zealous. You've got to be the hardest worker. You've got to be the most studious. You've got to do the things that other people aren't willing to do. And Saul is affirmed in his gifts. He's affirmed in his calling. He rises to the very top of leadership. He writes later that he was a Pharisee among Pharisees. If there's a threat to his faith at the time, as we see in Jesus, Saul will be the one who can stomp it out. And on the road to Damascus, what God says is that very thing that gives you identity, that very thing that orients you, that very thing you're most proud of, most assured of, most firm about in your life, that's what I want to change. That's what I want to... Saul couldn't choose. We don't choose those things ourselves, but that's what transformation looks like. And that can be hard to think about. Who is the right question. Who, as you move into a new year, are you looking to for what your life should look like? Are you in charge of that? Or are you looking for God to be? Walter Brueggemann's a scholar who talks about this, and he says that, that actually before we can see God really change people and change the world, before there's a reorientation, he says there has to be a disorientation. A mentor of mine used to say that, that it was like a, 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 like a pot, like if you're repotting a plant. If any of you are gardeners, I'm not. I've been told this is true. If none of this is true, I'll tell you who to blame because this is not my analogy, but it's an analogy that I think makes sense. And he says that if you're repotting a plant, you have to loosen the plant. You have to loosen the soil around the plant first. You don't just grab it and rip it out, but you loosen the soil. Is that right? Anybody? Okay, good. All right, so I'm not lying in front of you. Sorry, that's one of my New Year's resolutions. I don't want to lie in front of you. And I didn't do it, right? This is God in Saul's life kind of loosening the soil, and that can be disoriented when you're being repotted. But disorientation is necessary, Walter Brueggemann says, before we can be reoriented. And that's what God's doing here. God's not messing with Saul. God's not messing with you and I if we're in moments of wilderness or disorientation. God is preparing us for reorientation. But you got to walk through the wilderness before you walk into the promised land. Who's authoring the change in your life? This is the story of faith. This isn't just one we picked a chapter out of the Bible and made this association. This is how the scripture works. Think about Abram. Abram's living in Haran with his wife Sarai. He's very successful. And then God comes with this disorienting message saying, I want you to be the father of many nations. But to do so, you got to do what others won't. you got to go out into the wilderness. And I will be with you and will bless you in all kinds of ways. 
It's what happens with Moses, isn't it, at the burning bush? Tending his father-in-law's sheep, doing exactly what he's supposed to do. And then there's this moment where God comes to him and says, I want you to go into the courts of Pharaoh and say that a time of justice has come for those who are enslaved. It's what happens with David, the youngest of brothers, that when Samuel comes to anoint a new king for Israel, passes over all of his impressive older brothers to come to the least likely and says, you are the one whom God has called. And he then goes out and fights Goliath and frees a nation and changes the course of history. It's what we talked about two weeks ago here in this space on Christmas Eve. That Mary and Joseph are good people who are getting married, who have a plan for their life. And then the angel Gabriel comes in with a message that is certainly a message of disorientation saying, guess what? You all are going to have a baby before your wedding day. And guess what? You're going to go to Bethlehem where you don't know anyone and go through the birth process together. And guess what? It's going to be great. And he's going to be the savior of the world. And the miracle of Mary and Joseph is that their life can be reoriented because they say yes to being disoriented. All these people's lives are changed and they go out and then change the world, but not one of them has a plan. And we know from history that Saul's life changes, don't we? We know that in the years to come, as Saul grows in his faith, he's going to, among other things, change his name and he's going to change his name from Saul to Paul. And the Apostle Paul will then be one who goes from murdering the first Christian to one who will talk and write about his faith in the most profound of ways, that this one who who orchestrated death for people will be one who then travels throughout modern-day Europe and modern-day Asia, planting churches. He will write more books in the New Testament than any other person, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, and so many others. And he changes the fabric of the world forever. But it starts by God saying, I'm going to need to repot you for a minute. If you and I really want to change, we're going to have to walk this same journey and open ourselves up to God doing it. And if that's not what you're looking for, then just stay in the 12-month cycle of talking about it. We can change. Our relationships can change. Our world can change. But it's going to look different than how we culturally approach it. All right, I'm going to end with this. A quick story just to illustrate what this can look like. So what are you supposed to do this week? Trying to set up a conversation between you and God for me to get out of the way. How do we do that? The story is, uh, and then we'll give you a homework assignment. Uh, The story is of a a young lady who was a part of a church that Beth and I were a part of many years ago, uh, whose name is Erin. And Aaron went through a kind of change like this. And, and uh, it was pretty cool how it happened. Aaron was a very successful woman. She was uh, a producer in television. She was uh, someone who had sacrificed, worked hard, made a great career out of herself, was recognized by her peers. Uh, but Aaron, after college and as she started her career, uh, she had not grown up in the church. She was not a Christian. But then Jesus had become a part of her life. Her, her faith had become real to her. And as she became a Christian and as she journeyed forward from this point, there was this restlessness to her. She wanted things to change. She wanted to, to kind of move in new directions. Like, I think God has stuff for me, but I can't figure it out. I'm making plans. I've got resolutions and I'm doing well in life. And, but it's, it's just an unsettled of, of wanting more. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. I got a plan. I want things to change. Here's how I'm going to do it. And it doesn't work. And one day some women in her small group asked her the questions like, well, what if, what if you're not asking the big enough questions? What if God wants to change your career? And Aaron was like, no, 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 no. I, I can't even tell you how hard I've sacrificed for that. You have no idea what it took. To, that, 
I've, no. And they're like, hey, well, what about your money? And how you spend your money? And she's like, that's my money, and I work for it, and so I'm going to use that, and it's, it's the other stuff that I want God to change and give me direction in. And a woman in her small group said something in a conversation that we were a part of. And she said to her, she said, Aaron, I, I wonder if you need to take all of your life and you've got these guarded parts. So she goes, what if you just like put everything on the table for God? If everything in your life was put on the table and you just, just to see what God might do, maybe you need to be more expansive to let God have those places. And so one night in her apartment, Aaron uh, was still wrestling with this stuff and she took a sticky, bunch of sticky notes, pad of sticky notes, and she started writing on, the, on a sticky note everything in her life, everything she could think of, every category. And so for one, on one sticky note, she wrote, my job. And then she took the sticky note off and she put it on her kitchen table. And then there's the next one. She talked about the guy she was dating at the time. She took that off, put it on the table. Took her money, took it off, put it on the table. Her vacation, took it off, put it on the table. And then that night, she had about 50 sticky notes on her kitchen table and she sent a photo to Beth and myself. And it was every detail, every category of her life. You couldn't even see the kitchen table anymore. It was just these sticky notes with different parts of her life. And the caption under the photo was, everything's now on the table. And you know what happened? God started to step in. And took Erin and opened up an opportunity where she moved from producing shows to a documentary film company contacting her and asking about whether she might want to come and work for them. And that's what she did. She stepped into something. They didn't need a pastor. They needed someone with Aaron's skills to help them tell their stories. And she stepped in, and they've made a number of films on issues of globalization and of poverty and of things that she truly believes in. And there's even been awards that have been won for some of the films that she's been involved with. She started taking her money and thinking about how she could use it to give and to save and to change her patterns to live with the generosity we read about in Scripture. She started thinking about her time started mentoring younger businesswomen and seeking to help them to step into roles that, that um, would fulfill and to uh, lead them in new directions. She started thinking about all kinds of aspects of her life. She got married. She had children, which she had never given time for before. She was just too busy, too focused, too driven. Everything was on the table. And it's then that God starts changing. That's what we'd like you to do this week. We'd like you to have a conversation with God about what God might have in store for you this year. Not what your plans are. And you're going, God, here's what I want 2024 to look like. What does God want? We want to set that conversation up. Some of you might do it like Aaron. You might, take, you might need to put everything on the table. Some of you might have different ways of doing it. But if you're sitting there going, I have no idea what it means to interact with, like have a conversation with God. We have a, an exercise we want to invite us to do as a church this week. There's an insert in your bulletin with something called an examine, a New Year's examine. We've used this at times before. And this is going to be an exercise that I want to encourage you to take the time in your schedule to work through this, maybe even every day this week. It's got a lot of questions that are there. And these questions are meant to be reflective on the year of 2023 as well as looking ahead to 2024. But they're not just reciting events. The examine is meant to help you see and hear the presence of God in the past so that you can imagine God's call and have that conversation about going forward. It's meant to put us in touch and have a conversation with God. And I wonder if we take that. And for those of you who are online, there's an online bulletin that has the exam and that's a part of it. All of us can do this together. I wonder what it might change if rather than this 12-month cultural cycle that leads us 
spinning. If we were willing to put everything on the table to have a conversation with God, you might be shocked at the things God wants to change in your life. But you know what else would shock you? How magnificent the reorientation might be to what lies ahead. Let's pray. Lord, lead us, guide us as your people. Speak to us this day, this week. And may it be for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.